Oh no, rebuking is an option. That's, that's how many churches are today. It's just, just an option, but people are not going to feel comfortable with that. There's no option. It's a command from God here. That's the myth of the King James only version. It's a myth. That's the only, the only inspired word of God in English. So if you're not a King James only, they don't even come to church. They start getting devoted to the news about the Middle East. They're more devoted to the news than to the Bible. They're more devoted to knowing what's going on in the Middle East and Russia because they think that that's what's going to help them interpret the Bible. With the coming of Jesus, the life, death, resurrection, ascension, the pouring of the Holy Spirit, the last days have been inaugurated, amen? The last days now in the future, it's already here. I want to invite you to please open your Bibles to Titus. The letter to Titus. Titus 1. I'm going to read once again verse 5 and then jump to verse 10. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of their circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans, ah, are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of men, who turn away from the truth, to the pure, to the clean. All things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. You may be seated and may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in the sight of the Lord our God. As we have been studying the pastoral ministry and the pastoral office, the office of elders or bishops or overseers, however we want to call the question I was thinking is, why are there pastors in the church? Why did Jesus appoint pastors to lead his flock? If the church under the new covenant is a kingdom of priests where all the members are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, why do we need overseers? Why not just free for all? What is the role of the pastors? Are they just to be the, the people who entertain others? That's how so many churches see is the pastor as an entertainer. So some, I have asked people about their churches and 
when they talk about their pastors and you ask, do you like your pastors? Oh, he's so funny. It's like, so what, he's just to entertain? Is that the purpose? And, and I think what I want to bring in this introduction here is a different angle that sometimes we forget to look at through the lenses of the New Testament. And that is that with the coming of Jesus, the last days have been inaugurated. The last days that the prophets were speaking, that the Spirit would be poured out, that the Messiah would come to redeem His people. With the coming of Jesus, the life, death, resurrection, ascension, the pouring of the Holy Spirit, the last days have been inaugurated. Amen? The last days now in the future. It's already here. And a great mark of the last days, one of the distinguished marks of the last days, is suffering, and the suffering marked by false teachers and false teachings in the church. I really like what Gregory Beale writes. He says, Throughout the synoptic gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Paul's writings, 1 Peter, and Revelation, false teaching, deception, and Christian suffering as a result of persecution composed an essential feature of the inaugurated end-time tribulation. On the one hand, elders are needed in order to maintain the doctrinal purity of the covenant community which is always either being influenced by or threatened from the infiltration of fifth columnist movements. Titus 1, 5 through 16, that's where we are today, gives this as the formal reason for the establishment of elders throughout the churches of Crete. And the same rationale is apparent in 1st and 2nd Timothy. So the establishment of the pastoral office in the church was because the Lord Jesus cares for his flock and he places their men that he's giving as gifts to the church to maintain the doctrinal purity of his flock. One example, if you want to turn there, keep one finger in Titus and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, starting verse 8, he says, Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, and he's quoting Psalm 68 here, and Paul is applying that to Jesus. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to them. So the, the, the victorious king now is the one giving gifts. That's what's beautiful about Christ. It says that in verse 11 through 14, it says that he gave apostles and prophets, evangelists, and you know, it's the continuation here of the church, the shepherds and teachers, or shepherd teachers, is the only office that remains in the church. Because that's the only office that their qualifications to be. And he says that he gives the shepherds teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Look at that, to mature manhood, to be measured to the, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And look at the, the reason here. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of what? Doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in, in deceitful schemes. And the picture here is of satanic schemes 
that Satan is using to infiltrate the church, to corrupt the church. And we, Paul is saying here in Ephesians 4 that as Christ, the victorious one, inaugurated the victory, and we know that the victory inaugurated has not yet been consummated, and this time, the last days between the inauguration to the consummation is marked by the hate of Satan towards the church and his knowledge that his time is short and his desire to harm the church as much as he can, and especially through false teachings. So, Paul is very clear once again here that the giving of pastors, elders to the church is to equip the church, to protect the church from false teachings. Look at Paul says. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, you start seeing once again how the, one of the main marks of the last days are false teachings and false teachers trying to destroy the church. So Paul says, now the Spirit, the Spirit expressly says that in the later times, that, that's the same thing as the last days, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Or 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul says, but understand this, that in the, when? The last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And then he says what? Why? Because it's already there. The last days have taken place. The author of Hebrews says that in these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son, Hebrews 1, 2. And then he goes on, the whole rest of the letter to the Hebrews is, stay away from these false teachers who are trying to deceive you by looking to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, that the culmination, the culmination of the ages, or the last days, they have come upon us. So according to the New Testament, the proliferation of false teachers is a mark of the last days. Therefore, Jesus, who cares for, for his flock, gives pastors, elders, now overseers to help the church, to protect the church from these nasty, evil people who are trying to infiltrate the church and contaminate the church and take people away from the truth of God. One example, and you can open your Bibles, is in Acts. So please open your Bibles to Acts. Acts chapter 14. And in Acts 14, we have uh, this beautiful connection between the last day's tribulation that the church is going through, false teachers, and the appointment of elders. So, Acts 14 and 15, we have this putting together of these main themes of tribulation that was expecting the last days. False teachers, the appointment of elders. So, in Acts 14, verses 22 through 23, or 21 through 23, it says, And when Paul and Barnabas had preached the gospel to that city and had many, had many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many what? Many tribulations. The church is going through the tribulations, through many tribulations. We must enter the kingdom of God. And look at that. And when they had appointed what? Elders. 
tribulations, false teachers, persecution, appointment of elders. And then he moved to Acts 15. Right in Acts 15 tells us that false teachers had come to the church and they were teaching what? Acts 15, 1. The people to be saved, they had to be what? They had to come under the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. So you see in Acts 14, this last day's tribulation, suffering, appointment of elders, false teachers. And then you're going to see in Acts 15 how the apostles and the elders together, they come together to protect the church from the false teachers. That's why you have the council. And in Acts 15, they are establishing protection against false teachings. So as you read the New Testament, brothers and sisters, the amount of teachings against false teachers, against false teachings is overwhelming. It's much more than in the Old Testament. I don't know, you can read the whole New Testament and I don't know how much of the New Testament you're going to be able to say, oh, that, that's not dealing with false teachers and false teachings. How many books in the New Testament are not dealing with false teachers and false teachings. Why? Because the last days have been inaugurated and a great characteristic of the last days is the presence of false teachers trying to get God's people out of the truth because he knows, Satan knows that the truth is the only means that saves, sanctifies, empowers people. So he's trying to deceive them, take, a, take them away. So pastors are not given to entertain people. Pastors are not called to be nice people. The duty of pastors, elders, is to protect the church. Amen? So, and that's what we see here in, in, in Titus 1. Now, returning there to Titus 1. And you see in verse 5 that he's giving the reason why he left Titus there so he could put the churches in order. Church order is so vital, so important. The churches need to be ordered. False teachers have been coming. And the, one of the marks of a, a church that's striving to be orderly is to be godly men leading that church. So I agree with Jonathan Lehman when he says, rightly ordered churches have elders who hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught and then give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. That's what we see here in Titus. So let us continue our journey here through Verses 10 through 16, uh, we are going to continue the outline that we started, I think, three Sundays ago. The rod to silence the false shepherds, the rod to rebuke the false shepherds, and then the rod to keep the false shepherds away from God's flock. So the first one, we, we saw that two Sundays ago. So just to review, so it's fresh in your minds, Paul says, four, and this four is explaining what? Is explaining what's coming prior, right? The appointment of elders, why the elders? Look at verse 9. Why the elders must hold firm to the trustworthy of God's word? Why they must have blameless character? For there are many, many. Remember, the mark of the last days is the enemy's attempt to destroy the church, sending many false teachers, false teachings. To pervert the church. And Paul says, because of who they are, look at verse 10, who they are. They are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, those of the circumcision party. Because of who they are, 
And what they do, they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to. Verse 11 says, they must be what? Silence. You need to muzzle them. You need to gag them. You need to remove the mic, remove the books out of the bookstore. You need to remove the, the material. You should not be giving attention to these people. They're false teachers. And people also following them. And then he says, not only to silence them, but sometimes they're going to be needed to be rebuked. So that's what we see in verses 12 through 13. He says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And you'd expect Paul to just to say, oh, that's so mean of Epimenides to say that. How, how rude is Epimenides? No, you guys are all good and nice and kind and beautiful. Paul actually says, no, it's true. This Cretan is saying the truth. That's how sin has been marked this country. And worst, it's inside the church. These people are behaving, they're taking the Cretan behavior and bringing inside the church. So he says, rebuke them. Look at verse 9, chapter 1, verse 9. Saying that the elders must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that they may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and what? And rebuke those who contradict. So now he's going to continue exploring that. And it's not just rebuke, but it's a sharp rebuke. Sharply, harshly, severely. And we're going to talk more about rebuke because he goes through in this letter here. He talks about rebuking. But rebuke has different ways to be performed. Amen. Some Christians believe that the only way to rebuke someone is by following Matthew 18. Matthew 18 becomes this mantra. Matthew 18, Matthew 18. But the Bible has more, not less, but more than Matthew 18. Amen? It becomes like forgive. You've got to forgive. You've got to forgive. You've got to forgive. But the Bible talks more than just forgiving. The Bible talks about repentance. Confession of sin. So you need to be careful. When Ezra confronts the men of Israel for marrying foreign women, he doesn't follow Matthew 18. It's a rebuke. It's a public rebuke. When Nehemiah confronts the, the men in Israel, it's a public rebuke. In Galatians 2, Paul says that he rebukes Peter in front of the other Jews. We see Jesus rebuking Peter, the apostles, in front of people without first rebuking them privately. How often Jesus rebukes the false teachers publicly without taking them aside and say, hey, actually, this is a false teaching. No, there is a public rebuke. And I, I hope that you, the members of this church, would hope that if by an accident <laughs> we have somebody preaching here that is preaching a heresy. I hope that you would want me and, and Joseph and then whatever elders we have here to come and rebuke publicly and say, that's, that's ungodly teaching. That's harmful to the flock. One thing is certain, rebuke and sharp rebuke can and only must be accomplished when there is sin. 
Not when just your feelings are hurt. Because sometimes we get our feelings hurt for no reason. Sometimes we create a standard that's not God's standard. And then when people hurt us, we, we think, oh, I need to rebuke him. So no, it's when there is sin. And also there are different degrees of sin. Sin is always sin, but how sin, is, how sin affects others is important to keep in mind. So it requires wisdom to know when to rebuke and when to sharp rebuke. Amen? Like in a home. You need wisdom. The leaders have to make sure that there is sin. The nature of the sin. Is it just ignorance or immaturity or is it rebellion? And the gravity of the sin. Is it affecting others now? That we need to deal with that publicly. So... One thing is clear too. So there, is, there are two things that are clear. One, when there is sin, there must be rebuked. And when there is sin, we cannot avoid the rebuke. That's the other side. Because it's easy for us to, oh no, rebuking is an option. That's, that's how many churches are today. Just, it's just an option. But people are not going to feel comfortable with that. There is no option. It's a command from God here. And he says in verse 13, therefore, rebuke them sharply. And what is the purpose? That they may be sound in the faith. The, the, the goal is restoration. The goal is not vindication. The goal is not rebuke for rebuke's sake, just so I can feel better. Argumentative people are like that, right? They want to rebuke other people just so they can feel better. I want the argument. No. The rebuke is always for restoring. You've got to see this person who is just being immersed in sin. He's sick. He needs to be delivered from that body of death. That's what rebuke is. I like what Proverbs 25 says. Proverbs 25, 12 says, Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover. A rebuke to a listening ear. A wise rebuke that's properly received is of lasting value. When pastors are faithful to rebuke disobedient and deceived people in the church, the church is actually being adorned in God's eyes. The church is being beautified. Have you thought about that? When there's biblical rebuke in the church, the church is actually being beautified. That's the complete opposite of today, right? People think that, oh, if you're bringing church discipline, if you have rebuke, oh, that's so ugly, that's so mean, actually makes the church beautiful because you're purifying the church. And look at chapter 3 of Titus. Look at verse 9. Here's what happens when the person does not listen to the rebuke. He says, 3.9, But avoid foolish con controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, what? Have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. So after the rebuke, the person is not listening. What is the church supposed to do? 
What? Have nothing to do with such person. And Paul is going to continue now, going to chapter 1. He says, Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. And now he's going to contrast the sound faith, the sound doctrine with the unhealthy doctrine. Look at that. Not devoting themselves, verse 14, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Jewish myths. Look at chapter 1, verse 10. They're called of the, what party are they part of? Yeah, they're Jews. They, they're, or maybe they're Cretans trying to make people come under the Mosaic Covenant. Become Jews once again. So they're teaching that people must come under the Mosaic law, under the old covenant stipulations to be Christians. We saw that in chapter 3, verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies about the law. That's what was going on with these false teachers. Telling people that to be Christians, to be true Christians, they need to be what? Obeying the Mosaic law. And let me tell you that the false teachers are rarely, they're going to come to you and say, hey, to be saved, to be truly accepted, you need to obey the, the laws of the Old Testament. They're not going to say that. Do you know what they're going to say? Do you believe in salvation by faith alone? Amen, me too. Do you believe in grace alone? Me too. Do you believe in Jesus alone? Me too. But it's very good for us to keep the Mosaic laws. And suddenly, this is very good, actually becomes, you must obey the Mosaic laws to be a better Christian, to be truly accepted. And look what Paul says. Paul says that they were devoting themselves to the false teachings. They're so interested in these, these Jewish myths that they're holding firm, devoting themselves, devoting themselves to Jewish myths. Paul says, he talks about that in other places. He says, as I urge you when I was going to Macedonia, Timothy, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to uh, devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. He also says, 1 Timothy 4.1, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by what? Devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Look, at Paul doesn't measure words. He calls what it is teachings of demons. We live in a very tolerant culture, right? So, oh, woe to you if you say that what people believe are teachings of demons. They have people holding to Mormonism, Jehovah Witnesses, Roman Catholics, all sorts of teachings that are far away from the sound teaching of the scriptures. We cannot say that those are teachings of demons. That's not how Paul acts. He says what it is. He's trying to take people away from the truth. And these people start devoting themselves and taking hold of, here's the Jewish myths. Wrong interpretations of the Mosaic law. To the point that they become fascinated, devoted to. 
And that's what happens to people. Uh, I know that you know people like that. They suddenly they start getting this minutia of these myths, these little things, these new little things. And these new little things become big things. We have had multiple people who have emailed us or have talked to me before coming to visit the church. And the question is, do you guys, are you guys King James only? That's the myth of the King James only version. It's a myth. That's the only, the only inspired word of God in English. So if you're not a King James only, they don't even come to church. Because the little thing becomes a gigantic thing. They become devoted to, loyal to, to the myth. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.4, and there is a contrast between listening to the truth and wandering off into myths. Look how Paul says, you cannot hold the two together. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers. Talk about accumulation of false teachers. <laughs> people who speak what they want to hear. To suit their own passions. And you t- look at that. We'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into a myths. You cannot stay in the truth and hold to the myth. And Paul says that these Jewish teachings that they were teaching there, they're just myths. What is a myth? Yes. Something that does not hold the weight of truth. It's a fable. It's a creation of man. A myth in the New Testament is the opposite of the truth. It holds no weight. It's, it only serves to distract people from the truth. Because the truth of God sanctifies and changes our lives. But the myths don't do that. It's interesting that as we study the, the use of the word myth in the, in the early centuries, first century, you see that myth was a problem not only because it had falsehoods, but because these falsehoods would be used to promote sinful behavior. So the problem with myth is not just, uh, just a, a silly story. You know, it's like, oh, it's a myth. It's just a little fable. The problem was that is that these fables were actually endorsing sinful behavior. And that's why I believe Paul is saying, stay far away from these things. It's not only that he has no truth, it's that the lies actually serve to empower you to live ungodly lives. So, not only Jewish myths, but look at, he says also that is, let me find where we are here. Let's see. Titus 1, he says, devoting, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths. And then he gives the other side of the coin. And the commands of men, they walk together. The two sides of a coin. Creation of man's imagination leading to man's justification for certain acts. So they start requiring people to do things. The origin of these commands is the mind of man instead of the mind of God. Jesus says in Mark 7 that actually they make the word of God void by the traditions, by the commands of man. 
And these commands of men are often the misuse of these scriptures. They are twisting the scriptures, twisting the word of God, so it can be applied in a different context to support what they want. Right? Jewish myths, myths of men, commands of men, they walk together and there are two examples of how it has nothing to do with sound doctrine. So, let me just apply this text into our lives today. Present application of myths and commands of men. I think sometimes we can read that and, and say, oh man, that's so far away, Jewish myths. That has nothing to do with us today. Commands of men. But actually it's very, very applicable for us in America today. The problem with devotion to Jewish myths, mosaic laws, is a reality in the church today. So many people, so many people have been turning away from the true gospel and embracing Jewish myths, commands of men. Teachings that say that to be a true Christian, you must come under the Mosaic Covenant. You must obey the law. Not long ago, we had a young man visiting us for a while. He has not been coming anymore because from what I heard was that he was sucking to this myth of the Jewish myths. And the understanding that Christians are supposed to keep the Mosaic Law. A new name that's Coming up is pronomian, pronomian movement. And they're going to say, they, they sound very reformative. Oh, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. But then, the first five books of the Bible are binding as they were to the people under the Old Covenant. I would agree that the, the whole Old Testament is binding on us, but through Jesus. With Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Then it's all ours. Well, no, but then it's, you, you need to come under the Mosaic law. You need to keep the laws. And the problem is, the problem that is biblical is, sometimes people say, oh, I, I just keep some of the laws. I'm sorry, you cannot keep some of the laws. If you're going to keep some of the Mosaic laws, you need to keep the whole law was given, the law was given as a covenantal package. That's why I have a hard time with the distinction between moral, civil, religious. Under a theocracy, all the laws are moral, religious, civil. So if you're going to choose a few laws that you like, that you think, that's a messed up idea of the law. The Jews could not keep just some that they liked. They had to keep the whole thing. And Paul says that. James says that if you're going to keep one, you've got to keep the whole thing. Another, another example of the myths and commands of men, the myths that we see, uh, the love for gematria. Do you know what gematria is? Gematria is the study of the numbers. Kabbalah is the numerical values attributed to letters. So suddenly, people start being fascinated. They start devoting themselves to numerology in the Bible. 
They start trying to find meaning in, in all sorts of things with numbers in the Bible. I even found a book that was the numerology Bible. How to use the numbers of the Bible to be successful. So instead of horoscope, you, you, you learn how to use the numbers of the Bible for you to have success. And you can see they always claim to have a special knowledge that nobody else knows. Oh, if you just knew the numerical value of this name here, and, and you start adding these things, you have this... That's what people do. I, I have seen that. And suddenly they have this amazing interpretation of the scriptures that nobody ever saw because they were able to add the numbers. And the name Abraham, when you get to the Hebrew and you add the, the consonants, and you have this number, and this number leads you to this text. And... Oh, where does it stop? Another example is so with some some I'm going to be clear here some dispensational camps. Some dispensationalists they have huge charts with numbers and fancy interpretations. It's even hard to know where they are. We have all these charts that you need someone who is uniquely gifted to interpret those prophecies. And they get Daniel here, and then suddenly, you don't even know where they're going, but this, then they're coming and talk about Russia and the Middle East, and you're like, whoa, how did you get there? And people devoted themselves to these things. They started getting devoted to the news about the Middle East. They're more devoted to the news than to the Bible. They're more devoted to knowing what's going on in the Middle East and Russia because they think that that's what's going to help them interpret the Bible. As if the Bible needs that to help us understand it. Think about the number 666. The devotion that people have to this number. They're devoted to the point of not having a social security not having credit cards. They're so devoted to that. Some years, many years ago, some of you probably read the, the Bible Code. It became a best-selling one, best-selling book. The author was an Israelite mathematician who claimed to have decoded the Bible with a computer formula, unlocking 3,000 years of old prophecies and events such as the Kennedy assassination. Those are all in the Bible, if you didn't know. He was able to, by his mathematics, to, to find out that the Bible was talking about Kennedy's assassination. Or even the election of Bill Clinton was in the Bible. You didn't know that, right? It was there. Myths. Myths that people buy and they love. How about the Apocrypha? The Gospel of Thomas? The Book of Mormon? The Da Vinci Code. All books full of myths, empty of truth, that lead people astray from God's truth. Philip Ryken, he says, A good deal of Roman Catholic dogma is also mythical. Central Catholic doctrines such as purgatory, the veneration of saints, and the adoration of Mary come from tradition. They are speculations that go beyond the biblical teaching. Exactly the kind of Different teachings that the Bible condemns. In Brazil, the Assemblies of God, the Assembly of God churches there, 
They prohibit the members of having a TV in their homes. So the Assemblies of God in Brazil, they, they have a, a document a few years ago where they prohibit the members to have a TV. And some, if you have a TV, the, the pastors are the ones who can tell you what you watch. There are other denominations where the TV, people were not supposed to have TV, but I knew that they had TV in their closets. There was another denomination in Brazil where the members were prohibited of playing soccer. And then they changed. You can play soccer as long as it's with a plastic ball. The ball cannot be made of leather. It's like, whoa. There are other denominations that prohibit men and women from shaving. There's a prohibition of women wearing pants. It's okay if you're convicted about that, but that's not a biblical command that a denomination or pastors can impose on other people. Those are commands of men. Here's some more present-day myths, and we need to move fast here. The myth of the self-esteem. That's a myth. How wonderful you are. How awesome you are. The myth about the nature of man. Man is good. The myth about the church. You don't need the church. You can live the Christian life without loving, serving, being committed to the church. How about the myth of free will? That's a myth. The man has a free will. That's not in the Bible. Myths about sexuality. Oh, you can be gay, homosexual, lesbian, and still be a Christian. That's a myth. Creation of men. Empty of truth that actually takes people away from the truth of God. Or the sexual purity is between you and your happiness. And people devoted themselves to these empty, empty myths. Another one. We are going to be partaking of the Lord's Supper today. Here's another myth that we see in the churches today. Is that the church is all about me. The church is all about me. That's a myth. The music must make me happy. The length of the service and the length of the preaching must make me comfortable. The preaching must be about me. And that's why Paul says they accumulate teachers that will scratch their ears. Things that they like. Think about the ordinances. Water baptism. The Lord's Supper. Why do people get offended when we fence the Lord's table? When we say... What the Bible says, we, we give regulations that the Bible plays for the Lord's Supper. Do you know why some people get offended? It's because they were taught the myth that the Lord's Supper is all about me. Instead of seeing the Lord's Supper as an ordinance for the church, the body, it's all about me. I want to partake because that's going to make me feel better. I want to partake because that's about me. And that's why people get offended. It's because they believe this myth that all that's taking place here should be about me and not about the glory of God and the well-being of God's people. Look what Paul says. He says that in 1 Timothy 1, he says, As I urge you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, 
so that you may charge certain persons to not teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than what? The stewardship from God that is by faith. When people are starting devoting themselves to these silly things, these silly myths, they're actually compromising the stewardship that they have before God. The stewardship of the gospel, the stewardship of time, becomes a waste of time. And Paul says, going back to Titus 1.14, not devoting, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. There is nothing naive about these people. They're literally turning people away from the truth. And that's the enemy's tactic. To take people away from the truth. Why? Because the truth will sanctify. The truth will humble us. The truth will change us. The truth will save the lost. So there is a tactic to remove people from the truth. So instead of devoting themselves to misinterpretations of the Mosaic law. Instead of devoting themselves to man-made commandments. The scripture tells us to actually devote ourselves to the ABCs of the Christian life. So 1 Timothy 4, 13 says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of the scripture, to the exhortation, to the teaching. The ABCs that we are doing today. That's what Christians should be devoted to. A life in a local church where they worship the Lord, come under the healthy sound teaching of the scriptures. Or Hebrews 2, 1, therefore we must pay much closer attention. That, that's the same word. A better translation could be, therefore we must devote ourselves to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. So let us devote ourselves to what matters. Amen? And as I was thinking about this, uh, there is a, a fascinating connection between these false teachings, these myths, these creations of men, and dietary laws. I started thinking about that, how so much of these false teachings always somehow will touch the person's belly, the stomach. So we know for sure, especially reading the whole New Testament, how the, these Judaizers, these false Jewish teachers here, they were commanding people to abstain from certain foods and eat certain foods, going to the Mosaic Law. Or think about the Seventh-day Adventist. Think about the Seventh-day Adventist. Under the visions of the prophetess Ellen White, besides the fact that they command the members to keep the Sabbath, Ellen White received the gospel health. She received from God the gospel health. That teaches that their followers cannot eat meat, but if they eat, they must follow the Levitical dietary laws. And no coffee. No coffee. Also, interesting, one Mormon official website says, In the early 1800s, God revealed a law of physical and spiritual health that we refer as the word of wisdom. In this law, God deals foods that are good for us to eat, details. God details food that are good for us to eat, as well as substances we should avoid because of the harm they cause to our bodies. In the word of wisdom, God says fruits, vegetables, and grains are nutritious and helpful to our bodies. He encourages us to eat meat sparingly. 
God also cautions us to avoid certain substances, including coffee and tea. Hindus also have dietary laws. Buddhists have dietary laws. Muslims, Jews have dietary laws. Roman Catholic Church has dietary laws. Prohibition of eating flesh of meat on some specific days. Only in Christ, all these laws are fulfilled. And Christians are free to enjoy their Lord's bountiful gift to us. You go to the Old Testament. According to these scriptures, the food laws that we find in the Mosaic Covenant, they had one primary purpose. It was not health. It had nothing to do with health. Because if the issue was health, God would continue requiring us to eat health. Healthy foods, amen? If the, if the food laws was, was about health, and God says, oh, forget about that. Then, God, where is your hygienic standards here? No, the purpose of the food laws under the old covenant, as Leviticus 20 tells us, was to remind the Israelites that they belong to God. Every meal, every bite was supposed to be a reminder they had been purchased by the blood of the Lamb. They belonged to God and that every meal was supposed to be holy unto the Lord. Every time they would dress, they need to remember that they were bought by the Lord. They belong to the Lord. And also, you think about the Middle East, the ancient Near East. Every time you'd eat, every time you'd have a meal with somebody, there was a picture of fellowship. And the Lord said, no, you're not going to have fellowship with the other nations. You are a holy nation. You cannot have this fellowship. And Paul will tell us in Ephesians 2 that when Christ comes, Acts chapter 10, this wall, this wall of divisions falls apart. And Jews and Gentiles in Christ are one. And that's why these food laws that once separated us are no longer abiding. Because we all partake of Christ who is our food. So Paul says in Colossians 2, look how he says, If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish. According to human precepts and teachings. Look how he says, This have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and ascetism and severity of the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. How many people keeping all these dietary laws of the Old Testament yet has no power to stop the sinful desires of the flesh? They appear to be good. Look at this person. He follows the Old Testament laws. Paul says those are commandments of men because under the New Covenant we are no longer under the Mosaic Covenant. And actually, it's just for appearance sake, because it has no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Christ alone can do that. And then, to move the last and we finish here, he says, continue this idea of food and purification and, and, and things that you can eat to make you more pure and more holy and more acceptable before God, Paul says, to the pure. 
All things are what? Pure. And re remember that all things here has a context, okay? Paul is not saying that you can watch any movie that you, are, that you want, that you can do whatever you want that's going to be holy and pleasing to the Lord. No, there's a context here. The all things are pure. What is that he's talking about? The food that these people were telling other Christians not to eat or to eat. So the false teachers were saying that there were certain things that Christians had to abstain from and things that they had to do to be pure. And Paul says, no, no, no. In Jesus Christ, all things are pure because you have been clothed with Christ's righteousness. You have been accepted by God. It's not about eating and drinking. That's going to make you more pure, more cleansed before God. No. And then he says, but you did defile the unbelieving what? But you did defile the unbelieving? Nothing is pure. Why? Because it's all defiled inside. They remain, they remain standing before God in a defiled standard. They remain before God as unclean because they have not cling, clung to Christ alone. They don't have the righteousness of Christ alone. And as we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper, just one comment here. Some people think that by taking the Lord's Supper, they become more pure before God. Taking the Lord's Supper, if you're not in Christ, if you're not loving Christ, if you're not in communion with His body, preserving the unity that the Lord's Supper proclaims, partaking of the Lord's Supper is going to be actually harmful for you. And as we approach the Lord's table... We are reminded of verse 15. To the pure, all things are what? Why? Because we have been purified by Christ. The only reason why all things are pure is because we are no longer under the Mosaic Covenant, but we are under Christ. We are in Christ. And by Him, because of Him, and through Him, we are made clean before the Lord. Amen? So I'm going to pray, ask the Lord's blessing as we prepare ourselves to partake of the Lord's Supper, that we are celebrating this wonderful truth that we are pure, we are clean before God because of Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that your word would pierce our hearts, change us, transform us, Deliver us, deliver us, O Lord, from myths, commandments of men. Help us to stand firm in your truth, Lord. So we need you. We need your grace. We need your mercy. We need your Holy Spirit to help us. How easy, how easy it is to wander off into myths and false teachings. So please preserve us, guard us. Defend your flock. You are the great shepherd, the great pastor of this flock, and we need you. I pray to prepare our hearts as we 
long and get ready to partake of the Lord's Supper. What a joy it is to come to your table. To proclaim and be reminded that in Christ Jesus, we are clean. There is no regulation anymore that will make us clean before you. It's all by his sacrifice. So please prepare our hearts, Lord. Renew the joy. Increase our affections for Jesus. How wonderful it is, Lord, to sit at your table and fellowship with you and fellowship with your people. In Jesus' name, amen.